Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. No Alex Lawson this week. Alex is gone. Um, you always say it with such glee. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. I don't <laughs> care for the guy. I've said it many times. Yes, it's uh, known. Well, the one, I mean, the one good thing is, I mean, it sucks. January sucks in general. Just, True. Just categorically. But you know where it sucks more? Chicago. And that's where Alex is. Alex sent me a shot of the weather uh, this week, and there were there were a lot of negative numbers on there, which I just just doesn't doesn't sound great. Yeah, usually in New York, the winters are bad enough here that you're not really thinking like, oh, I'd really love to be here in January. But in comparison, <laughs> ooh, beautiful that time of year. <laughs> yeah, so with we we're missing Alex, but we do have a packed show this mm-hmm. week, and we, we might we might maybe have some audio of Alex, a special report of, you know, sort of a musical report of some kind. I always love a musical report. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That'll so we'll, be see, the, we'll see. I don't know. End of the show. If people want to stick around for that. Yeah. Um, but before we get there, we're going to talk with two of our, our favorite guest reporters. We're going to talk to Jimmy Hoover and Andrew Strickler, both about different aspects of a big story in, in the world of law. Big law firm Skadden Arps was um, hit with a penalty from the Department of Justice for not registering for some lobbying work. It's arguably the biggest Law 360 story. It's just a squarely Law 360 story. Oh, it's story. right in our wheelhouse. So yep. we're going to break it all down. Big law firm did did bad things. Yeah, and it's also perfect for us because it's big law firm did complicated thing that's right. hard to understand. So right. we'll make it easy for everybody to follow along. Yeah, and at the end of the show, we're going to talk about uh, talk about some football. Amber's... Favorite um, subject? I'll, I'll try to muddle through. I don't know how been that'll some, go. Been some lawsuits filed over our controversial call in last weekend's games. It's a, always... Bill, you're just going to have to explain all of it to me because I'm so dumb when it's it gonna comes It's going to be Bill by himself talking for <laughs> five minutes. It's going to yeah, be exciting. Well, we'll see how that goes. Well, before we get there, let's talk about something I do understand a little better. Supreme Court did something this week. Yeah. The... Um, the, the high court allowed the Trump administration's ban on transgender people serving in the military to go forward. It had been blocked by a lower court. Um, the decision's a big deal, obviously, for um, the parties involved and for transgender people and f- just in its own right. But it's sort of a, the, you know, it hits on a couple of things. We've been talking about a lot about um, the role of courts and judicial review and everything else. So it's a big Interesting story. Well, let's reset for people that maybe weren't following along. How did this all start? Yeah, so back in um, back last summer in July, well, I guess two summers ago, in July 2017, um, Trump abruptly announced on Twitter that um, transgender people would be barred from serving in the military. That was uh, it was a reversal of an Obama administration change that had been made the year prior in 2016. Um, like I said, it was pretty abrupt. Um, apparently, there was. It later came out that there was only like a day's notice for Jim Mattis, who was the uh, defense secretary at the time. So it was pretty, pretty out of out of left field. But um, the ban generally uh, it bars transgender people from military service. Sort of what it sounds like. Um, there's exceptions. There's if you're willing to serve in your quote biological sex. Um, and for people who are already there, there's some carve outs, but it, it pretty much is what it sounds like. And when uh, anytime Trump has hastily rolled out a new policy, lawsuits followed. Yep. Um, so we it was pretty quickly challenged in federal court. And um, uh, in October 2017, a federal judge issued a preliminary injunction uh, putting it on pause, saying we're going to examine this before it goes forward. The idea was that it probably violated the Fifth Amendment. Um, the quote was, 
As a form of government action that classifies people based on their gender identity and disfavors a class of historically persecuted and politically powerless individuals, the president's directives are subject to a fairly searching form of scrutiny, meaning we're going to look at this pretty hard to see if it, if it violates the, the Constitution. And I said right up top, this is actually a SCOTUS story where we are now. So how did we get into the Supreme Court? They, the administration took the case of the Supreme Court, which we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but um, they skipped the appellate courts. They asked to go straight to the Supreme Court from from a trial court. Um, they asked for to, to rule on the substance of it or at the very least to lift the injunctions. So on Monday, the court ruled 5-4 to lift the injunctions, meaning the policy will go forward while the case is going on. What they did not do, however, was decide the merits of the case. Um, they sent it back, which means it's going to go through that normal process. It's going to go to a federal appeals court, a circuit court, and they're going to rule on it. And then it'll send it back to presumably to the Supreme Court. Um, that, as it sounds, that was sort of a split ruling. Both sure. sides sort of claimed victory. Um, but but it, it, even it's it's split even in the sense that it, it, it sort of, as I mentioned up top, it hits on two big things about like, like the processes and the powers of the federal judiciary that, that everyone's really been watching, especially over the last two years. I really want to dig into that because these um, nationwide injunctions seem to be coming up more and more yeah. during the Trump era. So... Tell us more about those injunctions well, and, and how much the government doesn't love them. They don't love them. Um, yeah, it's uh, so federal ju- federal district judges, the lowest level of federal judge, um, despite their you know being in a geographic area, they they traditionally have had this power to issue an injunction that that is nationwide, that it shuts down this uh, a, a, a policy of the federal government that um, that they rule could violate the law. Um, but that has really frustrated the Trump administration over the last few years, because as we've hit on on this show a lot, um, the, some of these hasty rollouts of different policies have been shut down by the courts. So we've seen it a ton with immigration, which ton. I love to talk about. Um, but is it as many as I think it is? It feels like this has happened quite a bit. Yeah. So that that was sort of a theme of the administration's uh, petition to the Supreme Court. They said that um, it was part of an unfortunate growing trend. Um and that these previously were pretty rare, these these uh, injunctions, these preliminary injunctions on a nationwide basis. But in recent years, they've become sort of routine. Um, and that, that they cited a stat that there had been 25 such orders over the first two years of the Trump yeah, administration. Yeah, I mean, that so, is a lot. It's like one a month. Exactly. So um, the, the argument obviously appeared to sway the court because the court did lift um, the injunction. Um and the policy will go forward and while the while the case plays out at the lower court. I feel like we've been talking about the Trump administration and interaction with the courts long enough now that we're seeing all kinds of repeating themes. Mm-hmm. And the other one is the Supreme Court getting involved really early in the life cycle of a case. Yeah, it's it's definitely another trend, especially. And you have to think it will continue given the ideological makeup of the court. It, you you got to think that, that they think that the Supreme Court is oftentimes going to come down on on their side. Um, but we've seen this process of, you know, skipping the some of the steps along the appellate ladder and going straight to the Supreme Court. We saw it in that census question case. We saw sure. it in a lot of the immigration cases. Um, and it's just, it, it's really weird for typical court watchers because usually you're sitting around having conversations maybe with other legal nerds about how you're waiting for full merits decisions that reach circuit level and there's full circuit splits before the court gets involved. Well, think about Obamacare. That's a good example of sure. sort of the way that it normally would play out that 
the, you know, there were different rulings in different courts around the country. The Fifth Circuit said one thing and the Ninth Circuit said another thing. And yeah. that all percolated before it got to the Supreme Court. That's sort of the the process that that is being skipped. Um, yeah, it's goes, like a short circuiting of all of that. Right. And the argument here was that, you know, that they they issued this order and that it nullified the judgment of the military about who should be in the military. And it's an issue of national security. And it's the gov- the military decided that this was an important issue that that would hinder their ability to protect the nation and everything else. And it needed to be decided quickly. Clearly, unlike the other thing that we were talking about, that argument did not resonate with the court because the court, um, they overturned the injunction, but they sent the case back down to go through the normal process. So can we expect more stuff like this going forward uh, where the the Trump administration takes something straight to the Supreme Court to try to get rid of these preliminary nationwide injunctions? Yeah, the um, at least with the issue of going straight to SCOTUS, um, we could see it very soon because um, on Tuesday, the administration filed a similar or moved to file a similar um, expedited Supreme Court review in um, uh, it's the case over the placing of of a citizenship question on the 2020 census. Right. Um, a federal judge, a federal district judge in Manhattan issued a pretty sharply worded injunction last week preventing the government from doing so. And, um, you know, they've filed this thing saying that we need this decided quickly because it needs to be done before the 2020 census sure. and everything else. So um, we <laughs> will probably see uh, an answer on, on in that case. And my guess would be likely many more over the next two years, at least. One of the top law firms in the country, Skadden Arps, has agreed to pay a $4.6 million penalty for claims that it failed to register lobbying work for the Ukrainian government. The violations arose as part of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Paul Manafort, who ended up pleading guilty to conspiracy and obstruction charges. Today we're joined by DC reporter Jimmy Hoover to take us inside what led to a big penalty for Skadden. Welcome to the show, Jimmy. Thanks for having me on. Jimmy, we always turn to you to explain these complicated D.C. stories, and I think people have sort of been following along with Manafort, but maybe don't really understand what exactly happened with Skadden this week. Can you give us the overview? Okay, so a quick overview is that Skadden um, essentially settled claims by the Department of Justice that it broke a law requiring lobbyists on behalf of foreign governments to register with the Department of Justice, uh, according to uh, prosecutors. Skadden was involved essentially in a U.S. public relations campaign on behalf of the Ukrainian government mm-hmm. to kind of soften the international condemnation from what many saw as a uh, political, politically motivated prosecution. Right. So, yeah, they agreed to pay $4.6 million, register as a foreign agent, and basically beep up their, uh, you know, compliance practices with uh, federal investigations. So, you know, we've we've sort of been, you know, this story has sort of slowly been developing over the last six months, but we got a lot of new information this week through the the filing of this settlement agreement that Skadden reached with the government. Um, and and it, it tells a very interesting story. So I wanted to I wanted to have you take us back to the beginning and sort of explain how all of this got started. I mean, it ended with a four point six million dollar <laughs> agreement that said we were 
sort of lightly lobbying secretly on behalf of a foreign government. But, you know, how does this how does this start? Where's the story start? Guys, I have to interject just to say I loved, Jimmy, your headline on this. Skadden began Ukraine work with caution, ended it with lies. (laughs) So we want to start with the caution and get to the lies as we talk today. Sure. Yeah. And they admitted to that. Uh, You know, they admitted to the appendix being true. So anyway, um, yeah, so this began in the early part of 2012 after the uh, prosecution of the former prime minister uh, of Ukraine, Yulia Tymoshenko, who was kind of the opposition leader to then uh, President uh, Viktor Yanukovych. And uh, basically, uh, like I mentioned, the U.S., the EU, and you know various international human rights groups were condemning Ukraine for what they saw as a politically motivated uh, prosecution. And the Ukrainian Ministry of Justice essentially wanted to hire you know a, a big name American law firm uh, to to write a report on the fairness of the trial. Enter mm-hmm. uh, Republican lobbyist uh, Paul Manafort, who reaches out to Skadden, and they basically broker a deal where Skadden's going to take the lead on this thing. So they're going to write this report that says you know or that looks at what happened in. The Ukraine and say everything was above board. Uh, this, you know, this th- some of this condemnation doesn't make sense. Yeah, that was the idea uh, of the Ukrainian government. Of course, Skadden maintains that they uh, wanted to preserve their independence in you know engaging in this work. But essentially, that was the outcome that uh, the Ukrainian government was was hoping for. And at this point, they decide they don't need to register under this lobbying uh, law. Correct. Right. So um, we know from emails described uh, by the Department of Justice in an appendix that I should say Skadden has admitted are true. Um, One of the lawyers uh, assigned to this uh, work on behalf of the Ukrainian government made clear that, you know, the the powers that be at the law firm did not want this work to come with attendant obligations to register as a foreign agent uh, for the Ukrainian government under the terms of a law known as the Foreign Registration uh, Foreign Agent Registration Act, which basically means that if you're doing political work for a foreign government, you have to register with the DOJ. Otherwise, there there can be serious consequences. But so that. they realized that this was a situation where you could easily step over that line, right? They but and they decided that they wanted to stay on the side where you don't have to register as a lobbyist. That's right. There was even an interaction that we now see from the uh, DOJ files that, you know, there was an interaction between the two partners on the case where they were saying, hey, look, you know, we're not going to be coordinating the PR campaign on behalf of the Ukrainian government. And uh, one of the other partners responded, good advice. It was obviously advice that they wouldn't totally follow all the way, but that's (laughs) how they began their work uh, for the government, thinking, you know, we're going to specifically be focused on this purely legal issue of evaluating the fairness of this prosecution, and we are not going to be involved in some kind of media campaign to uh, make the Ukrainian government look better. All right. Well, this all sounds pretty good to start. They've established that this is a possible issue. They've decided that their compliance strategy here is to stay on the side of not having to register and not doing work that would lead to that. Where do things start to slip over the line? So it started to slip pretty early on. I mean, you saw just a few weeks after they were retained uh, with the help of what we now know is a $4 million advance from a a yet-to-be-disclosed Ukrainian business person in Kiev. But it started to slip pretty early on in that um, one of the lead partners who can be identified as former uh, Obama White House counsel Greg Craig uh, essentially 
uh, was communicating back and forth with Manafort about how uh, the Ukrainian government should essentially hire a specific public relations firm to coordinate, you know, the messaging on the final report that was yet to be come out. So early on, um, Craig uh, was involved in those discussions, yeah. and then you see over the course of 2012 that, you know, continuous documents uh, related to the PR campaign is shared with some of the Skadden lawyers, and they get bounced around. So the lines start to blur a little bit between this purely legal work and, you know, what can arguably be called public relations. And then a, a New York Times reporter gets into the mix and it, it sort of continues to move toward toward PR, spin, lobbying, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, so the DOJ has been particularly focused on this interaction that uh, Craig uh, has had with the New York Times in the uh, fall to the winter of 2012 as they're gearing up to release the report. The report. He first reaches out to a reporter at the New York Times in October, but then eventually sets up an interview for December 11th, which is the eve of the report's release, mm-hmm. essentially dangling an exclusive um, to the final version of the report, which, of course, we now know found no evidence of you know political motivation here. So um, basically they set up a, a conference call with... Uh, Craig and uh, two of uh, two New York Times reporters, one of whom was based out of uh, uh, Moscow at the time, and essentially provides background information, a quote, and uh, an exclusive access mm-hmm. to the to the report itself that was had yet to be released by the Ukrainian government. This and they and they got the story they wanted, right? I mean, it came out. I, uh, you included the headline in your story. <laughs> Well, yes. Yeah, so uh, this is kind of an interesting quirk, but um, the New York Times story at first blush does not actually seem like all that great of PR for the Ukrainian government. I mean, the headline itself was it was published on uh, December 12th, 2012, uh, a double byline by two uh, reporters with the New York Times. Um, and the headline was Failings Found in Trial of Ukrainian Ex-Premier. Now, at first blush, that would seem like a pretty unfavorable coverage for the Ukrainian government. Mm-hmm. But, of course, nothing in that story mentions you know, evidence of political motivation that Skadden found to the prosecution of Timoshenko, which is essentially what it had been accused of right. by the international community. So while those failings you know, were under the standards of you know, Western due process and things like that, at the end of the day, it was largely exonerating uh, the Ministry of Justice from you know, some sham trial. So I see how we've um, gone from all above board to a really slippery slope we're going down here. But your story also mentioned that eventually Skadden was full on lying to the government. So where did we turn that corner? So it wasn't too long after the report was released that it uh, caught the attention of the Department of Justice's FARA unit, which is the unit within the DOJ's National Security Division that enforces this foreign lobbying law. And so the FARA unit sent one of its letters of inquiry to Skadden, basically wanting to know more about this work, you know, including, uh, you know, what... Uh, how much they had been paid, and uh, a copy of the you know engagement letter between the two, um, and the letter kind of bounced around the firm. Uh, it didn't go directly to Craig, but uh, Craig's response came a few months later, in which the DOJ now says they left out a lot of important details, like uh, for instance the you know correspondence with the public relations firm uh, or some of the other people uh, involved, including Manafort and Gates. 
and uh, especially the uh, December 2012 uh, interview with the New York Times. That's something that they didn't mention. So, um, you know, that response was found wanting, and so begins this kind of lengthy back and forth in which the DOJ now says uh, Craig uh, and, you know, Skadden more generally made a number of, you know, misleading claims and false representations about its actual specific work, right. uh, which they eventually say led them to led the government to falsely conclude that Skadden had no obligation to register as a foreign agent. But now you, let's fast forward to, you know, to our, our, our recent few years here. And, um, you know, Paul Manafort is someone who has been, uh, you know, under investigation. That's sort of a, sort of an understatement. Um, so how did we get to, you know, to this week where now we've got, we've got Skadden admitting to, to these, these missteps? Right. It seems like this would have all quietly gone away, but for the 2016 uh, presidential election, which triggered one thing, which triggered another, one of which being the special counsel's investigation of Paul Manafort, mm-hmm. who was obviously doing business with Scadden at a time at the time. So this put in, you know, new scrutiny um, under the firm's legal work for the Ukrainian government. So essentially, you had, uh, you know, n- new investigations over the dealings between and Manafort and and how it all interacted, um, you know, with this uh, foreign lobbying law, which I should mention has been being more heavily has been more heavily enforced in recent years than it was, say, when uh, this first came up in you know the, the summer of 2012. It's a fascinating story to look, you know, inside a law firm at how the the sausage is made with something like this, where it starts out as. It starts out as a, a, a piece of legal work, and it slowly blends and blurs into this into this situation where um, you, you, they were doing more than they originally wanted to, and and maybe breaking the law. Yeah, and not to mention you know misleading and lying to federal investigators over the course of you know a few months. But I get your point. I always hated in law school that phrase "slippery slope," but this one really fits that so perfectly. Thanks for explaining all this to us, Jimmy. Sure thing. Thanks for having me on. just heard from Jimmy Hoover about what got Skadden into hot water with the Justice Department, and now we're joined by a second guest, legal ethics reporter Andrew Strickler, who can tell us more about the legal risks faced by ex-partner Greg Craig and potentially some other people as well. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So uh, we heard sort of the, the back and forth about how the saga unfolded, and one of the names that kept coming up was this partner, Greg Craig. Can you tell us more about that person? Well, Greg Craig uh, is a is a very well known uh, attorney in Washington D.C. Uh, he started out in private practice, but in the eighties he uh, joined the the sort of government public service world. Uh, he worked for uh, Edward Kennedy. He worked for uh, then Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Um, in during uh, President Clinton's administration, uh, he actually served as Clinton's. Uh, attorney in the impeachment proceedings. Uh, he also was appointed by President Barack Obama as a White House counsel and served for a few years there. That's essentially like the lead ethics attorney for the president. It's a very important position, obviously. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, he left that job in 2010, and he joined SCAT. And that brings us to the story we just heard from Jimmy, which is that this guy played a fairly central role in what th- this, you know, in, in the last few days we found out was uh, a pretty problematic situation for, for Skadden. Could you sort of, you know, tell us, you know, in a nutshell, Craig's role here in, in, what, in what went down at Skadden? Well, Craig was the connection between the firm and Paul Manafort and this work that is at the center of the settlement that the, that the firm has, uh, has agreed to with the DOJ. Mm-hmm. Uh, Manafort, it's, we don't know what the personal connection there was, but Greg Craig signed the engagement letter for the firm in which the firm agreed to write a report, a sort of rule of law report. It was done at Manafort's behest, mm-hmm. but ostensibly for the Ukrainian Minister of Just- Ministry of Justice uh, and the then Prime Minister of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, who was Manafort's big lobbying client. Right. Um, so he led the team of Skadden uh, attorneys who wrote this report. They spent months and months and months interviewing uh, people in the Ukraine, prosecutors, attorneys. Uh, they uh, uh, interviewed uh, Yanukovych himself. Uh, Yulia Tymoshenko, who was the prime minister of Ukraine that preceded uh, Yanukovych and who was the subject of the prosecution, that was the real uh, topic of the report. It was quite an involved thing. Right. Uh, and then 2012. Well, I was going to say, and then and then we, we you know we heard from Jimmy that that he was involved in this as it sort of morphed into a into a PR into a PR campaign into a into a lobbying effort. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Uh, Skadden has been uh, this report has been uh, you know a bone in their craw for years and years and years because pretty quickly after the report was released, uh, people uh, in the U.S. State Department in Europe were very critical of the report, calling it basically a whitewash of a process prosecution that was discussed in the report. Uh, also, in 2014, after Viktor Yanukovych basically fled uh, Ukraine and dumped, you know, troves of government files all over the place, uh, journalists in uh, the Ukraine found uh, copies of what appeared to be advanced copies of this report that had been passed from the firm to people in the government. Uh, that sort of implicated, from a very early time, Skadden in some kind of effort to uh, to help play the report as part of some uh, bigger media campaign, uh, to give at least the Ukrainians a heads up about what was coming. Those issues raise this specter of foreign lobbying, which the firm has uh, said over and over and over uh, they were never engaged in. They never wanted to be engaged in, and they never would be. Uh, and yet here we are with this settlement um, and, you know, potentially a lot of trouble for Greg Craig himself. Yeah, so that's the crux of it here, that they didn't register under that foreign lobbying law. And you gave sort of the pedigree of, of Greg Craig, and he's at a prestigious firm like Skadden, and they sort of knew this could potentially be a problem right from the beginning of the project. Why do we think that Craig didn't 
keep the firewalls higher between what's what's traditional legal work and this PR lobbying arm? Um, were people just not scared of FARA as a rule? Well, it's interesting because historically FARA has been uh, often dodged and overlooked, and there have been plenty of situations, I think, in which people have legitimately not registered under FARA, uh, and then sort of after the fact thought, well, maybe there was something in a work that we did for some foreign client or foreign government that implicated the law. Greg Craig and Skadden cannot claim that they were not sensitive to the implications of FARA in this Ukraine report because within the DOJ settlement that they include all of these emails and back and forth between Craig and other people at the firm about avoiding the statute, about avoiding right. doing anything that would implicate the statute. And, and Skadden's not some little shop that doesn't know about this kind of stuff. They're a pretty sophisticated operation in the world of law. Absolutely. And Craig himself is certainly a very sophisticated guy and knew very well what the implications were. And the DOJ settlement says very clearly that they discussed it with the quote-unquote guru, the Fara guru at Skadden, before they went down this road. Uh, so, you know, those are all problems for uh, for Greg Craig. I think it's also really interesting, we talked a bit about this with Jimmy as well, that we reached a point where there was flat-out lying or at least concealing some things from the DOJ. Yeah, there's a break from where it goes from, you know, legal work to lobbying work to lying about lobbying work. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So um, can you tell us more about the implications that just come from that, that just the lying itself is really problematic here? Well, it's interesting. I mean, we look back to um, Alex Vanderswan. He was the associate in London who uh, was a Staten attorney who worked on the report. He was indicted and convicted last year for lying to investigators from the Mueller uh, team. Um, And part of what he admitted to doing was, uh, you know, obviously engaging in some of the public relations activities that are the subject of the FARA, but also discussing it and taping conversations with uh, Greg Craig, why he would be lying to um, to investigators, why he was taking this, this strange step of recording conversations with Greg Craig, are questions you now have to ask about Craig's role in all this, too. Yeah. Again, he has denied, and the firm has denied repeatedly, uh, doing anything that implicated Farah. But it's pretty clear that he was involved, as you spoke with Jimmy about, from a kind of early part of this work in uh, in helping choose public relations firms that were also hired as part of this big effort uh, by Manafort, uh, discussing how the rollout of the report was going to be uh, handled, his role in speaking with reporters about it. All of those things are are, are very obviously far implicated. The prob- the real problem comes in, though, when the far the DOJ went to Skadden and went to Craig and said, you know, we know about this report. It's been talked about in the press. We want to know exactly what was going on. And at that point, the DOJ is saying he misled them. He yeah. lied about the extent of his contacts with reporters. He omitted a lot of details about his connections with what he knew to be a PR effort. Right. Um, and that's where you've got real problems. Dodging Farah and not registering uh, very historically is very rarely 
come with any criminal liability. Lying to federal investigators who ask you as part of a sort of cooperative, can yeah. you help us understand what you were doing? When you lie in that kind of situation and you're a lawyer of the kind of sophistication Craig is, um, that looks very, very bad. That one we're good at. We know we know how to convict people of lying to investigators. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, is it's a that, pretty clear look. I'm it, sorry. Go ahead. Is that what he's facing now? Could this be a criminal conviction? Because it seems like Farah usually starts civil, uh, but we've we've gone into the realm of lying here. Well, we've seen all this new interest, obviously, in Farah since the Mueller probe, since. Manafort and Rick Gates were indicted. Um, a lot of people coming out of the uh, woodwork to uh, register retroactively, as Skadden has done as part of this uh, settlement with the DOJ. Um, new people being charged uh, with uh, FARA violations. So it's kind of a new a new time for for the DOJ in terms of this foreign agent issue. Um, that does not help. Greg Craig, uh, in terms of avoiding problems. Um, you know, how far it goes, uh, we don't know, but I spoke to a number of white collar experts, people uh, very involved uh, with the DOJ and the FAR Enforcement Unit, who uh, said they had a hard time seeing a way that Craig wouldn't be charged uh, with something. What it is, we don't know. I think we're going to have to watch and see here. This has been such an interesting thing to unpack with you, Andrew. Thanks for bringing it all to us. Thanks for having me. I like to end our show with something offbeat, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's about sports this week. It is. People, uh, you know, people like to complain about the refereeing in the NFL a lot, but uh, usually they stop short of filing lawsuits over it. Uh, that was not the case this week. Uh, there was a, you know, anyone who, who watched last week's NFC Championship game would would probably agree that there was a pretty, let's say, egregious missed call. Okay, um, let me just, full disclosure, which probably doesn't need to be disclosed, mm-hmm. I did not watch that game. Okay. I have zero idea of what you're talking about, but I'm going to turn to our producer, Steve, and get some backup because I think I need it this week. Steve, did you watch the game? Uh, no, I did not. Great. Well, that just, really look, I shouldn't assume. Gender, gender. I know, uh, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. Anyway. Well, just tell Steve and I what happened. Okay, so like I said, it was the NFC Championship game, and it was late in the game, Saints-Rams, and the... the Saints had a receiver going down the right side of the field, thrown to him, and just the most blatant pass interference that that could possibly happen. The guy was just laid out, nowhere near the ball. And the sort of interesting wrinkle here, sports-wise, is that the big complaint about the NFL in the last few years is that they've been over-calling things, that that, that the refs are too involved. This was like, it's like a, you know, someone turned around in baseball and just like hit the catcher in the face with a with the bat like it <laughs> I love this context you're giving me because now I'm following along with exactly what happened Amber, it was it just was a, just a quick question Amber do you know what pass interference is I do but only because I'm married and my husband <laughs> would be really mad if I hadn't listened to things he's told me over the years so anyway so you could one could argue that 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 was a pivotal moment and that sort of blew the game for for the Saints the Saints ended up losing the Rams are going to the Super Bowl 
it's. It, I love the stakes here because even I can follow along with this. It was the game that would get you into the Super Bowl. Exactly, and yeah. it was a terribly, terribly blown call. Everyone agrees that is not in dispute. Okay, but there's a lawsuit somehow. How did that happen? So Saints fans filed. Uh, it was on Tuesday. They filed a petition in Louisiana State Court um, on behalf of uh, season ticket holders and quote New Orleans Saints national fan base, aka the Houdat Nation. <laughs> Seeking to force uh, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell to take action and reverse the reverse the call. I would like to file a lawsuit about the outcome of last year's uh, RuPaul Drag Race. Sure, I would I'm like a to fan. I would and like to file lawsuits like all the how time. It turned out. I want to file so. a lawsuit against whoever's been microwaving fish. Do uh, I have standing to question what RuPaul decided in in a television show? Because that's the same thing, right? It's sort of the same issue here. That, that you know, the first question that any 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 legal nerd starts asking is like, well, sure, like that, that was a dumb thing that happened, but like, why are you able to sue over exactly. it? Exactly. Um, the, they're <laughs> what they say is that it, the Saints fans were quote, left bereft and with no faith in the National Football League for fairness, despite the league's own rules to correct such errors. Along with emotional anguish, monetary loss for season ticket holders. Um, I'm sure they were very sad. Right. So the actual like technicalities here is that there is this authority for the, the commissioner to, quote, um, investigate and take appropriate disciplinary and or corrective measures if any club non-participant uh, interference or calamity occurs in an NFL game. So I love that it has the word calamity. They're allowed to do this, but there's this other provision that says the commissioner will not apply authority in cases of complaints by clubs concerning judgmental errors or routine errors of omission by game officials. Okay. Games involving such complaints will continue to stand as completed. So, so they, this is going nowhere. They now. really have no grounds to file this lawsuit under the rules, and they don't have the requisite well, arm to file I like, a lawsuit. I like the passion. I, I mean, we were talking earlier about the Supreme Court getting involved earlier and earlier in cases. I mean, maybe this is just setting it up for... Uh, Trip to the high court. It's Who a great knows? point. I mean, I I would I would be interested to know the fan allegiances of the justices. <laughs> um, although they're they're pretty much all from the Northeast, I think. That's so. true. Yeah. Yep. Finally, we have one case where I don't have to follow what happens. It's pretty clear this one isn't going to work. It's true, and it sounds like you're trying to wrap us up here. But I am. I think I think Steve, who's in the booth with us, has some some pretty important audio of Alex that we'd like to that we'd like to play. Just so you know that he's he's involved in the show. It's true. The listeners, I think, would be upset if they didn't hear his voice for a for a week. All right, here we go, folks. Look, Kelly and I over here. We're not the we're not the on air talent, but you know, we're we're audio guys. And uh, when when Alex sends out a text on a Friday night, let me know that he's in my neighborhood and he's at the local karaoke place. I got to go check it out and do some reporting. is a strong karaoke choice. Unbelievable. <laughs> Alex, can't wait to see you next week. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Jimmy Hoover and Andrew Strickler, and contributing reporters, Jody Godoy and Zach Zagger. Music for the show comes from Alex Lawson, Silent Partner, and Little Glassman. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about this week, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. And as always, we'd love to get some reviews. It helps other people find us. Thanks and join us again next week.